living the word today. So, every time we open this book, it is a fresh opportunity for God to talk to us. Let's make sure, let's make very sure that we are listening to what he wants to say to us. Livingthewordtoday.com. Look, the message of the Bible does indeed prepare us for eternity, but it also prepares us for the day we are currently living. Welcome to Living the Word Today. We invite you to spend the next few minutes studying God's Word with your Bible teacher, Jesse Wagoner. Pastor Wagoner's desire for you is not only to understand God's truth, but to help you live it today. More resources can be found on our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Now it is time to open your heart and your Bible for your time in the Word. A while back a cabinet in our garage and I decided I better, it needed some attention. It's one of these cabinets goes to the floor up maybe five and a half feet or so and you open two doors and there's all the shelves in there. It was to the place that I couldn't really get both doors shut. Now this is, maybe you guys can relate to this, this was my stuff. Okay, it had some tools in there. You know, there's a WD-40, some duct tape, there's some all the stuff you need in life. Uh, I have super glue in there. I have Gorilla Glue in there. I have Elmer's glue in there. I have Elmer's wood glue in there. All the stuff that you just need to survive, right? This is basic. This is my survival kit that's in there. And I have I have caulking, you know, for the bathroom. I got plumber's putty. I got Teflon tape. I've got bits and pieces of everything, and I couldn't get the door shut. So I got in there, and I'm pulling stuff out. Literally, I took a bag of a trash bag of stuff out of this cabinet. And it wasn't one of them little wimpy bags. This is one of them like hefty bags, you know, like the real manly, you know, you know, big bags. Filled that out, got everything back in there, and I still could barely get the door shut. And I'm like, why is this? It's it's like air filling a vacuum. It's just like it's just like it, nothing changed after all that stuff went out. I don't know how your garage or your basement or your attic or your closet is. But most of us probably suffer from this reality that we think that we have more than likely too much stuff. And we need to declutter. We need to sort. We need to go through. We need to give away. We need to sell. We need to throw away because we have all of this stuff. I, I don't want to accuse any of us of a, there's been a word that's been inserted into our, our lectionary over the last 10 years. I don't want to accuse anyone of it, but it's the word hoarders. In fact, two different cable shows, or, or one of them on one of the cable sh channels was their, their highest rated show about hoarders. All I have to do is go to my my, my stuff in my cabinet in the garage and I can see that I have too much. I don't want to watch anyone else's problem with hoarding. However, I wonder if we are ever spiritual hoarders. We have lots of blessings from God. We have been redeemed. We have been saved. We have been forgiven. We've been gifted by this with the spirit of god we've been gifted by spiritual gifts from the spirit of god we have an eternal you know outlook on the future we have all these wonderful things he's given to us we have them we enjoy them we have them stacked up we have them stuffed away but they're not meant to stay exclusively in our domain those blessings that god has sent our way are to be shared someone else. Last week we talked about, Lord, just take it, whatever I got, liabilities, abilities, whatever, just, just the spirit of take it, Lord. And this is going to be a fitting uh, compliment to that because we do need to come to this reality that the blessings he has given us, he's given us a purpose, and the purpose is that we can share what he has done for us. Mark chapter 5, verse 1 starts this way. 
Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, who no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he often, had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself. And when he saw Jesus from afar, from afar he ran and worshipped him. Now I want you to think with me for just a moment. That's quite a description, isn't it? I was uh, talking, to the, and by the way, we're just going to call him demon-possessed man. That's what we're going to call him, and that's, uh, that's our title for today. Uh, we started a few weeks ago with the uh, water pitcher carrier guy, and uh, someone suggested, actually, uh, the, uh, uh, that's, that I've suggested that we could call him the, this is from Tim and Amy, the godless Gadara guy. We could call him the, the deadly demon dude. I didn't think it would fit here because we really we could call him, this could be the living in the tombs, unclothed, uncontrolled, possessed with a legion of demons guy, okay? This guy, and all that to say this, this guy was a first class mess when it came to life. There is no mess, mess you could conceive of, no mess that you could ever dream up or ever witness or ever imagine that would be like the mess that this man has. Did you just hear that list? I mean, he's, he's got all these things. He's, he's running around like this wild man, dwelling in tombs, cutting himself. People tried to, because they were scared of him, tried to put him in chain, chains and shackles. He would break them because of the strength that the demons had put in, into him. He was crying out night and day. And all this is going on. And then something very significant happens. Jesus steps off a boat that had come across the Sea of Galilee. And as he steps off the boat, the man does not avoid Jesus, does not, a, not a run from him. He simply says this in verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And we'll stop there for just a moment because we've got to kind of break this apart. But there's some things that we need to learn. There's a few background components you need to understand. First of all, it says uh, the, the, the country of the Gadarenes. If you can imagine the Sea of Galilee, and it's not certainly round, but if you can imagine it sort of being clock-shaped, this is down about 4 and 5 on the dot, clock dial, okay? On the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, there's an area known as Decapolis, Deca, 10, Polis City. It's an area of 10 cities that is in that area. It was a, it was a separate province. It was Gentile territory. It was, it, it was the worship of all sorts of gods, all sorts of false gods and all sorts of things. And it was in that area that Jesus went. Interesting, if you read this story, you have no record of any of the disciples ever getting out of the boat. Jesus steps out of the boat. The man who was healed wants to get in the boat. Jesus steps back in, the boat goes to the other side. There's no record. They didn't even want to step foot in this area. This was not a place, if you're a Torah-compliant Jew, if you're living kosher and you're living, trying to live according to the law, this is not a place you even want to get your feet into. This is Satan's territory. This is pagan territory. This is bad territory. And then when he gets there and he steps out of the boat, he's met with not only the bad territory, he's met with the, can we say the baddest of the bad, the worst of the worst, the most extreme case you could ever imagine. And we see how Satan has, has messed this guy up. Can we say it that way? Sometimes he uses less, he uses less dramatic means to mess us up. Sometimes he will give false hope in our lives that, that somehow life apart from Christ can be ultimately meaningful and successful. Sometimes he'll mess us up to take a shortcut, drink this, take this, go this lifestyle. Life will be easier. And Satan always pays back when he makes these kind of arrangements with counterfeit bills. 
So he has come to this place. So I just want to, here's some basic lessons. This is going to be real easy. This is real simple, real fast. Number one, here's the first lesson that I want to drop on you, which you already know. First of all, Satan is bad, okay? Not shocking, not surprising. But I say that because I want you to, in your own mind, zero in on how bad is bad. This man has been cut off from family. The man has been cut off from society. The man is, uh, is, is not living a normal life. He is tormented. He's hurting himself, self-harm. He is, he is just, he's just miserable in every way. The people who have tried to help him have been unsuccessful at best and probably hurtful at worst. There's no help, there's no hope, there's no treatment, there's no rehab, there's nothing that this man can, can turn to that's going to make his life different than it is when he meets Jesus. By the way, the demons that you're going to re- meet here in just a moment, you see one of their intents is to do this, to take even our humanity away from us, to so block out the created in us image of God himself to, so that we become people that aren't even people in some measure. I don't want to say that. I don't want to take away anyone's value here, but, but to, that, that's what he wants to do. He wants to rob them of dignity. He wants to rob them of ability. He wants to rob them of, of feeling any kind of accomplishment, to rob them, that sort of thing. Satan is bad. Number two, humans are willing victims of the Satan who's bad. Well, you say, well, this guy's a victim. Absolutely. Put him in the victim category. However, the fact that this is the only man in Scripture that is this bad, in this case of demon possession, would sort of indicate, because of the area they're in, and sort of indicated because of the kind of worship that went on there, this probably he had somehow participated in getting this bad. At least he had never lived the lifestyle that he should have been living. Probably there was some worship of false gods. Probably there was some demonic things involved in. And somehow, some way, through the choices he'd made, he had willingly, maybe didn't, maybe unknowingly, but willingly because of the choices he made, had invited this mess into his life. It certainly wasn't God's fault. Satan can't get all the blame, but there's a participation. And when we wind up in a mess, the messes we have been in, that person that we're not any longer being and not, you know, we just sang about, that person that is gone was that way because we participated in the demoral decline. Okay? Number three, let's get to the good part. Verse six, when he, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Literally, he bows down. Isn't that amazing? No one else could tame him. No one else wanted to be around him. Everybody else avoided him. He apparently avoided everybody else. But when Jesus shows up, he comes and falls down. Listen to this, verse seven. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most High God. In the story before this, back in chapter 4, Jesus calms the stormy waters of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, he's in the back sleeping. They wake him up. Don't you care? He says, peace be still, storm over. And they said, who can this be that even the storms and the winds obey him? Here's his disciples. He was their rabbi. Many of them believe probably that he was their Messiah. But then they say, but who is this? There's something different about him, and we don't know who it is. And this demon-possessed man had it all figured out. You are the son of the most high God. And this is what he says. I implore you, in verse 7, I implore you by God. Isn't that interesting? Here's a demon-possessed man, and the demons are speaking. I implore you on the mercies of God that you treat me in some way kindly, 
because of your superior position. I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he, he said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. This all tells us simply this, and this is the best news I could give you. I could probably stop right here. Satan's bad. Humans are willing victims. Jesus is the greatest over everything, everybody, in any situation in life. If demons have figured it out, we should too. If demons put it into practice, why don't we? So that we just see him as a superior position. And they said, do not torment. Because they knew, without a doubt, that Jesus was their superior. And demons are fallen angels that followed Satan in his rebellion and way back there. Let's just say it that way. They are stronger than humans because we are created a little lower than the humans. So they have powers and abilities that we do not have. But they also do not have the powers and ability that only God has. And they recognize that and they realize that a day is coming when there's going to be a day of judgment and they will be cast into eternal torment. But for whatever reason, God has allowed a certain percentage of these demons to have access to the world to tempt and to, to do all the damaging things that they do. Verse 9 is interesting. And he asked him, what is your name? And he answered, saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. A Roman legion of that day was between three and 6,000 soldiers. Now, maybe this is not an exact numerical calculation, but can we just say this is a whole bunch of demons inhabiting one man? Now, I have all sorts of questions here, and I'll tell you what my questions are. And you probably have some of the same questions, and then I'm going to tell you very directly, I can't answer any of these questions, okay? Why were there that many demons in one man? Why do demons want to possess humans? What is the purpose of that? What is the end game of that? They asked later, you know, permission to enter these pigs that are there. I'm getting ahead of myself in the story, but you know the story anyway. What is that about? Let me just tell you, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But this is what I do know. Whatever they're up to, Jesus is in charge. Whatever they're up to, he is superior. Whatever comes our way, he is bigger and stronger. I'm glad the text of Scripture tells me that, because sometimes my... My ability to perceive life does not tell me that. Sometimes other people in my life don't tell me that. I have many people who do encourage me. I don't want to say that. But sometimes you hear negative voices out there too. But you know what? The scriptures tell us that the demons tremble. The demons believe. He says, I am legion. So talk about being outnumbered. It's Jesus and a whole host of thousands of demons, and they are begging for mercy. And he begged him earnestly, verse 10, that he would not send them out of the country. Don't send us out of the country. Leave us here. And I think the whole fear underneath is they're going to be sent to a place of chains and bondage and torment, which is their eternal destiny. They just don't want to get there now. Now, a large herd of swine was feeding there on the, near the mountains. That pretty much tells us that this was not prime Jewish territory, right? Okay, an unclean animal, they just they avoided them. It was, they were not kosher, not clean. But here they are, they're out there on the mountains. And this is an amazing thing. I don't have a question of this in two for either. So all the demons begged him, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And maybe it's just an act of desperation. I don't know, but here's what happens. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So what do you do with that? Mission accomplished for the demons or mission failed for the demons? The fact that the, they entered the swine, that's where they wanted to go, and before the story's over, all the swine are just out there bobbing into the Sea of Galilee. So 
I would assume, this is a big assumption, I would assume he gives them that permission. The sea in Jewish culture was always viewed as dangerous and dark and the deep and sort of like the abyss. That's what I pictured. My personal view, just an opinion, is that they went into the swine and by the time the swine drowned, they were confined to a place of eternal bondage. Now, it doesn't say that in the text. That's possible. We'll leave it at that. Okay? So all this has taken place. So here's the lesson. Satan is bad. Humans are willing victims. Jesus is the greatest. That's where we start. But now let me give you the lesson. Okay? This is what we need to take home. And this is the lesson that we need to see. Let's go back to the man, all right? It says in verse 14, Then those who fled the, excuse me, not fled, those who fed, <laughs> fed the swine fled. And they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what had happened. So here come the people. You know, it's like you know, everybody's slowing down to see the fender bender. We all got to see what's going on. We got to figure out what's, what this is all about. So it says, They came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion. And listen to this description. Sitting and clothed and in his right mind. He has been set free. Everything has changed. Why? Because Jesus redeemed him through his power. Because Jesus showed up. Because Jesus was kind and benevolent. Because Jesus is loving. And Jesus is forgiving. And just like that prodigal that we sang about at the very beginning of this service. There is that second chance. There is that third chance. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. And if you're here this morning, you say, my life is a mess. I need restoration. Maybe you don't understand what all this means, and maybe I can't explain it all to you, but I do, do know this. Whatever the problem, Jesus is the solution. Whatever the question, Jesus is the answer. Whatever the weakness, Jesus is the power. And he is the solution. And we would like to introduce him to you if that's what you need this morning. So there he is, seated, clothed in his right mind. And look at the last phrase of verse 15. And they were afraid. Now probably they're troubled because somebody lost some money down there with the pigs, right? And I read a whole article this week about the whole economic situation and why this sounds so unjust that these people lost their pigs. Jesus owns all the pigs too, okay? Can we just say it that way? He can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants, however he wants. He's Jesus. But they were probably troubled. They had probably lost some money. That's what they were thinking. But also it scared them that the power that would deliver this man is a power that that was a little bit intimidating. Here's what they do. And those who saw it told them what had happened to him, that it had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And they began to plead with him, depart from their region. Get out of here. Please leave. And Jesus follows that request. And when he got into the boat, remember I told you, nowhere does it say the disciples ever got out. He got out, has this meeting with this man, the pigs, the demons. He gets back in the boat. But notice what happened. He who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. <laughs> I don't want to stay here. I don't want to be here. I don't, th th this has nothing but bad memories for me. This has nothing but bad record for me. This has nothing. What are these people going to think of me? They remember all that stuff that just was taking place not more than 30 minutes ago in my life and now everything's different. I want to be with you. If you can do this for me on this day, what can you do for me every day? I want to be with you. And here's what Jesus says. Here's the most amazing thing in the whole story, by the way. And all the rest of this is just sort of mind-blowing, but here it is. He made them might be with him, verse 19. And this is our lesson. However, Jesus did not permit it, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Here's the lesson. 
Here's our job. Here's his job. Simply this. We need to tell what the Lord has done for me and what the Lord has done for you. He wants us to just tell what the Lord has done. Well, I've never been demon-possessed and had all this. That doesn't matter. What's the Lord done for you? My testimony is so boring. I was a little child. I went to Sunday school. I prayed to receive Christ. Nothing much changed in my life because you can't do much sinning when you're eight years old. My life didn't change much, and, and, and I just don't have much to say. If you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you have a story to tell. And amazing, it takes as much grace to keep you from a life of debauchery as it does to save you out of a life of debauchery, doesn't it? So whatever it is, wherever you come from, however you messed up, maybe you feel, maybe you identify with this man <laughs> in some particular way. If that was you, here's the reality. He wants you to tell that to someone else. Now, he does. Look at what it says in verse 20. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all, what? What's the last word? Marveled. What? What a story. Now, granted, God gave him a platform. It's uh, the backstories, the demons and the legions and all that sort of thing. But Jesus is demonstrating something in this, this event. And by the way, this, three of the Gospels share this, Luke and Matthew and Mark. Mark goes into the most details, the reason I camp here. But there's something else going on. And it's amazing when you study the scriptures and you dig into the culture, there's always something else going on. He wants us to know not only what he's doing for us, but what he's doing for the entire world ultimately. Jesus tells us in John 6 that to, to be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Really? Does it look like it? We've got to take that on faith that there's something better coming, that his kingdom will be established, right? Now, there's one other place that the picture of pigs shows up in this culture. You don't see it here in the text of Scripture. But we know it from secular history. In 6 B.C., just very shortly before Jesus was born, the Roman legion that patrolled and exerted influence and ruled as the military arm of the empire in Judea was the 10th legion. The 10th legion had three banners that they would use, and we know this from history. One was a boat because part of the legion would be, you know, shipborne. Part of, part of them had a banner that was a bull because they were equestrian. They rode horses and chariots, that sort of thing, so a raging running bull was their picture. And then the foot soldiers had a, a banner, and on it was a wild tusked boar, B-O-A-R, wild pig, okay? Can you imagine the imagery for Jews during all those times, all through the life of Christ? Here come those Romans, and there's their pig banner, pigs, swine. You can just, you just see the imagery, right? So they're identified with that. Later, in 70 AD, it's the 10th regiment, the 10th legion, I should say, of the Roman army that surrounds Jerusalem, finally breaks down the walls and slaughters the inhabitants, burns the city, destroys the temple in 70 AD. In 73, 74 BC, it's the 10th Roman legion that surrounds Masada. If you go to Masada today, you can still look down the walls and you can see the camps that they built all around Masada there, the last stand of Israel before it folded. The 10th legion, the banner of the boar. I don't think it's stretching it too far to tell his disciples as they think about this later to say, yes, he can destroy the legions of demons. He is victorious over Satan. He's victorious over all of the manifest of Satan, all the power of Satan, even the swine that have invaded our world. 
And someday it'll all be done. It'll all be in the abyss. It'll all be condemned. And mankind will be set free, not just as individuals, but all those that enter that place of rest because they are the redeemed will have eternal rest in the great kingdom of God. We need to tell what he's done for us, not only in our experience, but also in our expectation. And then we need to tell of his love for us. That's what he says in the end of verse 19, and how he's had compassion on you, love for you, mercy upon you. He is there for you. The lesson is simply this. Our redemption, what God has done for us, whether we think it's little or we think it's much, whether we're still learning about it or you need to be introduced to it today, is something we need to tell. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? Well, you know what? We live in a world where sometimes it feels like the best thing for we Christians to do is keep a low profile. Because people will think you're crazy. People will make fun of you. It might be it might not be politically correct to talk about Jesus. It may not be accepted in a massively tolerant, supposedly tolerant society that we say there's one Savior in Jesus is His name and there's only one way to heaven and that's faith in Him. There's no other way. To believe with the audacity of faith because we believe the authority of Scripture that what it says about Jesus is true. The demons had already figured it out. We live in a world that predominantly hasn't. So sometimes we feel like, low profile. I'll just sit over here and do my work. I'll just live in this community. I'll just keep a low profile. And i got to tell you, sometimes it feels like that's the right thing to do. Except Jesus told this man, you go home to your family, go home to your friends, and do simply this. You tell them what great things he's done for you. Sometimes we think about our world, our community, our church, its future in a world that's growing ever darker, what, what do we do? You know, what kind of programs do we, do we do? What kind of initiatives do we do? What kind of things do we be involved in? And all that's important and proper, I get that. But sometimes it's not that complicated. What if all of us committed and practiced and learned that as God gives us opportunity, we're going to tell others what great things he's done for us? It could be as simple as this. We've got a basket of them back there somewhere. This little paper, little pamphlet, says, Know God personally. Would you like to know God personally? Great question. It's real simple. You can give it out and be bashful if you want to be. You can even do it anonymously if you have to do it. But that's, that's a great resource for you. If you go to our website, you can go to a section called Share. It's just calvarydv.com slash share. We have all kind of helps for you there. For some of you, all you need is a thumb, you know? And I, I would really like to see some of you do this. I, I would, I, I'll repost it. I'll like it. I'll share it. I'll do all that stuff. But, you know, just get your selfie phone up there and put it, turn it on video and just say, Hi, I'm me. Here's what I want to tell you about what God has done for me. Thumb, send, post. Some of you might just run into somebody sooner than you expect. And I want you to be ready. I want to be ready. This is how... By the way, when Jesus invaded this world, he didn't send in an army. He didn't send an army equal to the 10th legion. He didn't send an army of angels to take on the armies of demons. He just simply came, redeemed us, and he says, go and tell people what great things he's done for you. That was the invasion. That was the difference. That was the victory. And I just want to encourage you to simply move forward in that direction. What he's done is to be shared. And the question is, will you? Will you? 
We've talked about it. We've sung about it. We've, we've thought about our redemption. We've thought about what we do. And I, maybe we can't plot this out. Maybe we can't plan this out. But I would encourage you. We're going to go to prayer in just a moment. Just make this, Lord, help me to share with somebody some way what he's done for me. And may we be a people. May we be families. May we be a church that would tell somebody. Now, there's one last part to the story. And uh, next chapter, chapter 6, and we're just going to go there real quick, all right? Go down to verse 53. This is the second time Jesus goes back to the same area. 53, chapter 6, Mark. When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized them, ran through the whole surrounding region, began to carry out, out on their beds those who were sick. And wherever they heard he was, wherever he entered, the, entered into the villages and city of the country, they laid the sick in the marketplace and begged him that he might just touch them, touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched them were made well. Last time he's there, get out! Next time he comes, we're so glad you're here. Tell everybody, bring them all. Jesus is here. What made the difference? Because one formerly wild, demonic man did what Jesus told him to do. He told his story over and over again. He told what great things the Lord had done for him and how he'd had compassion on him. Next time Jesus shows up, the crowds come flocking. You, I, we can make a difference. The question is, will we? Thank you for joining us for Living the Word today. We appreciate your sharing in this study of the scriptures. Also, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you will not miss a single episode. And thanks, too, for your prayers and for letting others know of this ministry as we seek to be living the Word today. We would love to have your feedback and to hear from you. And the best way to contact us is through our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Until next time, may His blessing be yours.